Good morning, church family. Our scripture this morning is coming from Leviticus chapter 19. And um, as not on the screen, we'll start in verse 9 this morning um, and read through verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. When you reap the harvest of, the, of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God I am the Lord. You shall not, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Whom do we have in heaven but you, God? What do we desire on earth but you? Our heart and flesh may fail. You are the strength of our heart, our portion forever. God, this is our prayer this morning, that you would be our portion. God, as we've read your word, that you would be amongst your people this morning and speak through your word as your Holy Spirit moves. God, we live in a broken world who does not that does not live up to what you've shown us in your word this morning. God, I think about our country and the, the violence that's going on in Missouri. God, the violence that's going on overseas in the Middle East. The hatred and bitterness that exists between mankind, between brother and brother. And God, we know this morning that we live in a fallen world. God, teach your people this morning what, is, what it means to love one another. God, teach us what it means to live in community together. And to display the gospel by how we live amongst one another. God, this is your church. This is your bride. Help us to live as though we are your people. God, give us great unity in this body that we would love you well as we love one another. God, I pray for our pastors as they lead us. God, for Stephen, for Stephen, God, as they lead your people, God, protect them from the the darts of the fi- the fiery darts of the enemy of Satan, God, protect their families, put a guard around their families as you use them in this community. God, as Stephen comes this morning, God, I pray that you would use your word this morning. God, use your messenger to teach us this morning the things of God from your word. God, instruct us. 
We're desperate for a word from you. We need you this morning, Father. God, we give you this time. Speak as you you will. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible, would you take it and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19 this morning. Continue our study in the book of Leviticus. It's been a really rich study for me personal time preparing for preaching the Word of God. So I hope it's been helpful to you. People of Israel coming out of Egypt, they're God's people. He's delivered them. He's already put His salvation upon them. He has said, you are my people. I've delivered you. They come into the wilderness, begin a new calendar, begin a new relationship with the Lord. It's not very long, three months. As a matter of fact, they fail God. They worship idols, begin to follow after other gods. God, in His graciousness, provides them forgiveness and judgment, but the forgiveness is for those who had turned to God to turn back to Him, and He says, I am now going to relate to you in this way. And He gives them tabernacle. He says, I'm going to meet you there. He gives them a sacrificial system. He says, I'm going to bring atonement through sacrifices. He gives them the priesthood, and He says, you will approach me through the priest. And all of this will point toward there coming a day when I will my presence to be among you, and I will tabernacle among you. I will be your high priest, and you, through my son, will come to right relationship and to uh, live with God forever. God has been concerned with how he's going to relate to his people, and in Leviticus, he's given us some ideas about what Jesus is going to fulfill, and where we're going to go with him. When we get to Leviticus chapter 17, we begin to deal with blood. We dealt with sexual holiness. Today we deal with love. It's a bit easier, right? We come to a, we come to a chapter where uh, the message is a lot easier. I, I know that you're not nervous about what I'm going to say about Leviticus chapter 19. We get in here and it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, even though the message is easier, I would say to you as we walk out of here today, I hope that you get a sense of the weight of this text the way that I have this week as I've studied it. Living out the message of Leviticus 19 is much harder. It's harder. So I hope that you and I will walk away with two things today. First, I hope that we'll have an understanding of how we approach Leviticus and the law. I'm going to give you something because Leviticus is just, Leviticus 19 is kind of gives us, uh, it, it divides into three sections very easily, but ultimately, it gives us from 19, from, from verse 19 on, it gives us a bunch of miscellaneous rules. Which of those are we to follow? Which are we not? So I'm going to give you a, a paradigm, I think, today to read the Old Testament laws and, and how to apply them. But then secondly, I want you to go out with some simple, simple instructions on how we are to love one another how we are to love one another. Let's go to Leviticus 19. One of the purposes of going through books is to give you the idea of what the book and what the author of the book is telling us. So let me give you the outline of chapter 19, and then I'm going to help you with interpreting the end of chapter 19, and then we're going to go back and focus on verses 9 through 18 today, which was read for you uh, by Matt. And so let me give you the outline. In verses 3 through 8, there's an introduction, verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 through 8, God has said, Moses, I want you to say this to the congregation. In verse 3, he begins to talk about worship. 
he begins to talk about the worship of the people, what they're to do with the Sabbath, what they're to do not turning to idols, sacrificing peace offerings, and all of this. Here's what, how it will be accepted to the Lord. Here's what will be profane. He says, here's some natural laws about worship. God is holy. Worship me on my terms. We've dealt with that over and over. So you read that. Verses 9 through 18 9 through 18 are specifically about love in relationships. We're going to come back to that. That's where we focus today, love in our relationships. And then verses 19 through 35, I'm going to let you just read on your own because it's a bunch of statutes of the Lord. Look at verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. And then he's going to go into a lot of miscellaneous statutes. And you're going to read these and you're going to say... Well, why is this there? Why is this beside that? What of this applies to me today? For example, look at verse 19. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Well, praise the Lord, right? We can't wear polyester anymore. If you look at verse 19, if it applies to us, that, that's, that's where we are. What if this applies to where we are today? How do we read Leviticus 19 and say, what does God teach me here? I I, want to give you one overarching principle. I want to give you four questions to ask. First, the overarching principle. When we read the Old Testament, your your first question should not be, do I have to do that? Your first question should be, what is God teaching me here? What is God instructing me on here? And so to help you read verses like Leviticus 19, 19 and some others, uh, I want to give you kind of some, some questions to ask. First, first question, is the command repeated in the New Testament? You see, some of the commands in the Old Testament, in the, law, in the law of Moses, have been repeated for us in the New Testament, and those are binding on us. We're in the new covenant. We're not in the old covenant. If it's repeated, there are some issues about sexual morality. There are some issues about justice. And you and I are to uh, see those that are alluded to directly, uh, 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 repeated in the New Testament. They're binding on us. God says, if you love me, Jesus, when he came, if you love me, you will keep my commands. When Jesus gave a command, we're to follow that. And so they're binding on us. Secondly, though, I want you to go to the next question. If it's not repeated directly in the, in, the, in the New Testament, then I want to ask, is this command culturally bound? Is it a command that's culturally bound? In which case, we need to be wise about applying the principle of that command. Let me give you some examples. One example is, there in verse 20 and following, they had uh, you, you work in a day here in this agrarian culture, which even though you and I still live in, a, in an agricultural society here, there's, there's a lot of farming around us. Uh, not many of us, not even the majority of us in this room are farmers anymore so that we don't, uh, we don't apply the things like we're going to read and, and, and that were read to us earlier about uh, not plowing your field right up to the borders. Right? So we, we take some of that and we apply the principle of that. We're going to get there, but just let me give you a, a heads up. When you get back into the passage we just read about not plowing your field up to the borders, leaving some for the poor to glean, that, that's basically teaching us to be generous to the poor, to, to, to give, to have a, a mindset of giving. So there's a principle there, even though you don't take away and say, well, I can't plow my field up to the borders anymore. Great, I don't have a field. That one doesn't apply to me right? The principle still applies to you. So they had day workers. 
You're going to read how they're supposed to pay their day workers at the end of the day. Well, does that mean if I have employees, I have to pay them every day at the end of the day? No, we're in a different culture. Our culture accepts different things. Their culture accepted. When somebody worked today, you paid them. The New Testament called it a denarius. That was a day's wage. They paid them that day. So you made an agreement. You come to work for me, I'll pay you today. So there's a principle there. You make an agreement with somebody to pay them for something, then you do so. In our culture, we don't do day workers where you pay them at the end of the day. Most of you don't have employees that do that. So there's a principle. Further than that, though, there are some of these that are culturally bound, and they have to do with the idolatry and the pagan religions that were around Israel at the time. Let me give you an example. I'm getting ready to make some of you mad, so hang on. Watch this example. Go down to verse 28 with me. Go down to verse 28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. I grew up in a home that said, or I'm sorry, a a culture that said, no tattoos. As I read verse 28 of Leviticus 19, I think that when you have this phrase in there, if you look at it, for the dead, this was a pagan ritual where people would mark their bodies and cut their bodies for the dead. I think there's a clear warning here. You and I don't live in a culture where uh, if any of you have tattoos, my, my hunch is you didn't get a tattoo because you were doing it for the dead in some pagan ritual so that they would be okay in the afterlife. So we read this and say, here's a warning for us not to follow after pagan idolatry. Let's not go after the rituals of our culture and other religions Let's trust the Lord. And so, I read this and say, tattoos, just for marking your body, while I think they're painful, while I think you need to be reminded they're, they're, they're uh, a permanent, I don't think that the Bible here is saying absolutely no tattoos. For example, go back with me to verse 27. This one I've never heard anybody in my family ever tell me this. Stephen, watch how you shave. Look at verse 27. You shall not round off, the, round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Nobody's ever said that to me. Watch how you shave because you've got to be careful with this. If you round off the hair on your temples now, you're against the law of Moses, right? So my question, even as I read this as a, uh, as a, a, a young man when I was coming along is, Why do we pick and choose? How do we pick and choose what of these apply and what of these don't? I think that you and I ask some of these questions. If it's something in our culture, if we were still getting tattoos for the dead, then I would stand before you and say, I don't think it's wise for us to get tattoos. That's a a, a thing of our culture. While I still don't want to mark my body permanently, right? Because some of those, I've seen way too many people with tattoos that are grown out of proportion or somebody's name that they don't want on their body anymore. Uh, I, I don't think that I want to do that permanently on my body. I don't know that you're breaking God's law and offending Jesus by doing something like that. So we ask, what's, what, are the, what are the cultural things? Is this something that's pagan idolatry that we're following after? And if it is, we need to take that warning and that principle. Third question, third question. Is the command given to set the Jewish nation apart? 
There are certain commands here that were to set the Jewish nation apart. Uh, For example, go back up to verse 19. When they were not to let their cattle breed with a different kind, or they were not to sow their field with two kinds of seed, or they were not to wear their garment of cloth made of two kinds of material, God was doing some of these things, I think, like this, to say, you are going to be set apart. I want you as a Jewish nation to be different from every other nation in the world. And yet in our day, in the new covenant, here's what Jesus did. It's Ephesians chapter 2. The wall of separation from those who were part of Abraham's seed has, has been broken down. There is no wall of separation between those who are Jewish anymore and those who are of the world. Jew and Gentile alike come to Christ. This is what Galatians 3 teaches us. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave nor free. There's no male, no female. There are none of these kinds of things that we set ourselves apart as a nation. Now, God gives us some rules that set us apart as believers. We're to be like Him. But some of these laws don't apply because we're not trying to set ourselves as a nation apart anymore in physical matters, but in spiritual matters. So, was it given just to set the Jewish nation apart? If so then I don't think they apply anymore. Then the last one is the command about a sacrificial system. Is the command about the sacrificial system. If it is, then it was fulfilled in Christ. You can read some of those even in the first part of this chapter about do this with your peace offerings. Well, we don't offer peace offerings. Christ is the peace offering. When Christ fulfilled all of the sacrificial law, you and I don't obey those parts of the law of Moses anymore. So, is it repeated? Then we have to obey it. Is there a principle here that brings us to holiness to Christ? Then yes. Is it culturally bound? Then look for the principle and obey the principle. If it's given to set the Jewish nation apart, then we don't, we don't, we're not bound by it. And if it is part of the sacrificial system, we're not bound by it. As you read the rest of the text, have fun with it. Let's go to what I want to focus on in verses 9 through 18. Verses 9 through 18. We're going to focus on this. The end of verse 18 really gives us the summary. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to talk about love. It's probably one of the hardest commands that you and I will ever hear. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me, let me put one myth away before we even get into this. There are not two commands wrapped up in this command, love your neighbors yourself. There are not three great commandments that Jesus gives in the New Testament. When he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, <clears throat> the first one's easy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say the second and third one are like it, he said the second one. So let me just get this out of the way. You have not been commanded in the scriptures to love yourself. You do that, all right? He's not commanding you to do so, you already do so. All right, you got up this morning, you took care of your body, you fed your body, you take care of yourself. You don't need to be commanded to love yourself. What you need to be commanded to do is love others the way that you love you. All right, so there's not two here, there's one. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the most quoted Old Testament verse by Jesus in the New Testament. He quotes this verse more than any other Old Testament verse. So if you think about it, Jesus is holding his his Old Testament. This is his Bible, the Old Testament. Which verse does he go to most often? This is it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He is instructing us to love. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this is one of the two great commandments that you and I are to obey. He says the whole law hangs on this. All the prophets. You want to know what the first five books of your Bible are about? Jesus says it's about loving your neighbors yourself. 
Do you want to know what all the prophets are about in your Old Testament? When you read them, if you want to know what does this mean, Jesus has already said all of the prophets are here. Here's what they're talking about. Love your neighbors yourself. That's what he's told us. So you and I need to take this command pretty seriously. Love your neighbor as yourself. As a matter of fact, he goes further and just says, hey, this is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Paul in Romans chapter 13 says this is the summary of all the commands. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the law really comes down to one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. James calls it the royal law. Loving your neighbor. So you and I look at it together. And I hope that I can simplify it in a way that you can understand it and take it out and that it will be challenging to all of us today in Leviticus 19. I want to show you that there are five sections in the text that we're going to focus on. Beginning in verse 9, they split up pretty simply into two verse sections. And the way that you're going to know that is at the end of each section, God is going to give a command through Moses and going to say, I am the Lord. So look at the end of verse 10, I am the Lord your God. At the end of verse 12, I am the Lord. At the end of verse 14, I am the Lord. And every one of them are just like that. There are five sections. They all end with, I am the Lord. And I want to give us five instructions that come from this text that tell us here is how to love one another. Now before I get there, I hope that you are in this discussion with me because you understand the importance of Jesus saying how great the command is to love your neighbors yourself. And you would ask with me this morning, well, how do I do that? Because you and I live in a day where we throw around the word love like it's a five-cent word, and really it's not. We use the word love for all kinds of things and in all kinds of contexts, and I have people look at me and say, I love you, But their actions, their words, and their thoughts don't hold that out. So I want to pull us to understand that love is concrete in this text. So Jesus quotes, Paul quotes, James quotes Leviticus 19 and says, Love your neighbor. And if you go back to Leviticus 19, it doesn't say, Have warm fuzzies for your neighbor. It says, love is concrete, do these things. And so I want us to get these instructions about how to love. God's not primarily concerned about how you feel in your tingly feelings about other people. He's concerned about what you say, think, and do toward other people. And so let's look at the concrete instructions. As a matter of fact, before we go, let me give you a definition. You might want to write this down, a definition of love that will help you in your life. Speaking of that, pause. Let me say something to you. I meant to say it way before. If some of you are interested, I had somebody request for us to get some places where you could write some notes. They were taking some notes. So we have put a notepad here on the front. When you come out, there's a notepad on both of the front pews and one in the vestibule, and it just says sermon notes. Got you a little place to write some sermon notes here. As you come in, grab your sheet of paper. You can grab a whole pad. We'll replace it if you need to. Uh, Just don't use it as your scratch pad. It's for sermon notes, and if you want one, you can do that. All right, back into the sermon. Definition of love. Here we go. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love is not primarily a feeling, but it is a commitment of the will. Love is a commitment of the will to think, say, and do 
what is caring and beneficial to my neighbor. Love is a commitment of the will to think, say, and do what is caring and beneficial to my neighbor. I want you to notice two things about the definition. One, it's not a feeling first. Here's what I'll tell you. I know this, and I'll give you example after example after example. Love is not feeling first. Primarily, it's a commitment. It's a decision of my will to love you. So I love you not because I feel like I love you. I love you because I've chosen to love you. Right? Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. He made a decision to love you and go to the cross. So it's not primarily a feeling, but it's a commitment of your will. Secondly, I want you to notice that it's in both, it's in these three things. In what I think, so I'm going to tell my thoughts. I tell myself, I've told you this a hundred times, I hope that you and I can get it. I hope that your pastor can get it. You control your thoughts. You might have thoughts that come in your mind, you control what you do with them. So tell yourself what to think. Tell yourself what to think. Tell yourself right things. Don't just listen to yourself, I say to you. Talk to yourself. Don't just listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. What you think, what you say, and what you do. That's how you love others. So it's a commitment of the will to think, say, and do what is caring and beneficial to my neighbor. So in this section, I want to give you five instructions. At the end, I hope that I can give you five simple instructions, but I'm going to make it a statement, each one of these. In the first one, verses 9 and 10, love my neighbor. I'm to love my neighbor by being generous, by being generous. Look what he says. When you reap reap the harvest of your land, don't reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. When you've already harvested, don't go back and go again. Verse 10, rather, he says, I'm sorry, verse 10, when you get to your vineyard, don't strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. My hunch is that there are not many of you that are going to harvest your land right now that you could leave. As a matter of fact, if you did, we don't have the practice that they would have of those who are poor coming behind and gleaning from that. But you and I can learn something here. How do we love our neighbor? By being generous. You see, in their fields, they would not, they would have margins and they would leave the land there and they would leave the the harvest that they dropped. As a matter of fact, think with me about Ruth and Boaz. Go back and read the story. Boaz says, "Let let a little bit extra drop because there's this nice young lady coming and I want her to be able to glean some stuff. Right, Boaz is generous with what he's giving. So you and I need to think about how can we be generous. Let me give you an idea. When we're talking about caring for others here and being generous with them, I think that in in studying for the sermon, I've decided that there are times when we are generous as a family. Uh, my wife, I, I haven't hidden it from you, uh, my wife is the one that pushes me here, all right? So my nature is to be selfish, to not be giving. In our 16 years of marriage, Jenny has pushed me and pushed our family to be generous and to be giving, and she has really challenged me there to, 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 to 
give freely to others. And so I've just kind of thought as I was studying this, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm not the law, but I'm telling you what we might do, and, and you might do this. Set aside a bit of money every month. If it's $10, then it's $10. If it's $1,000, then it's $1,000. But look at, look for ways, be creative, and look for ways that you can bless somebody else. It doesn't have to be handing them a $10 bill. You could do it by spending that money to bless them. But look for a way in your family. This would be a great way for us to be generous, to, to leave, to intentionally leave some behind. So here's, here's a principle that I want to give you. Just like they were to leave margins in their fields, would you be careful to leave margins in your financial life so that when God gives you the opportunity, you can give, and further, you would actually look for places to bless others? This is love. Love your neighbors yourself. Love them. And so we're going to set aside some money, and we're going to look for ways. We do that every Christmas, by the way. We set aside a gift, and we look for somebody to be just like Santa Claus to them. We want to give them something that they'll never know who it was. And it's an exciting time for us. And so why don't we do that often? Instead of just once a year, we have every month to look for places where we can see There's a need here. We've set aside money. There are margins in our finances so that we can give. Now, if you have, by implication, if you have no financial margins in your life, then let me challenge you. Do you first start working on getting some financial margins in your life so that you can give? So that you can give not only to the work of the Lord. This giving is not just giving to tithe to the church. This is giving to the poor. This is above and beyond what we give to the church. So work to get those financial margins. Don't live at the edge of your means. So love your neighbor by being generous. Secondly, in verse 11, uh, love your neighbor by being honest. Here we're talking about dealing with our neighbor in what we say. Don't steal. Don't deal falsely. Do not lie to one another. All of those go together and they're tied together in that what you and I could see here is kind of a business transaction. If you go over to verse 35, he says, your weight, your scales need to be just. When you tell somebody they, they did business by weighing out something, you say you have a, 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 pan, a pound of this or uh, two and a half pounds of weed and I want to sell that, but your weight, when you balance this out, your weight is actually only two pounds and so you're only giving them two pounds, but your weight says on it 2.5 pounds. You're not dealing justly. You're lying. You're stealing. You're bearing false witness here. You're dealing falsely. So he says, love your neighbor by being honest in your dealings with them. Be honest. Now, there's a hundred places that you could think about, how am I tempted to not be honest? When someone says something to you in public, you're tempted to exaggerate and not say what is right. Here, let me, give you, let me just give you this. I think we do this very often. Uh, I think my dad taught me this as a young man. He said, Stephen, in your dealings with others, always attempt to the best of your ability to under-promise and over-deliver. But our culture actually does it the other way. We tend to over-promise and under-deliver. I'll do all of these great things and I never really get, oh yeah, we'll do that, we'll do that. Don't we have a temptation to do that? I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Love of your neighbor says under promise and then over deliver. That's loving your neighbor. 
Be honest in your dealings. Don't deal falsely with somebody. By the way, verse 12, he just says, don't do this in court either. Right? When you go to court, if you have to represent your neighbor, uh, uh, don't swear falsely uh, by the name of the Lord and so profane the name of God. Again, I am the Lord. So, love my neighbor by being honest. Thirdly, in verse 13, he says, love my neighbor by, by being concerned about the weak. Look what he says, don't oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. That's the verse I was just talking about. We don't typically do that. Here's what he's saying. Be concerned about the weak. When you make a promise to somebody, oppressing them is promising them, agreeing together, I'll do this, you'll do this, and you're not holding up your end of the bargain. I'll give you this amount of money if you do this. When you make that agreement and it comes to it and you say, well, you know, it's really not perfect. I'm going to hold this for a while. I'm going to do that. Don't oppress your neighbor. Go with your agreement. Honor your agreements. By the way, look at verse 14. This is why I say it's to the weak. Be concerned about the weak. Be concerned about those who are hired servants. He says in verse 14, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. It just hit me this morning, by the way, as I was reading this. If you were to curse somebody that was deaf, do they know it? They're not going to hear it. If you were to lay a stumbling block before somebody that's blind, can you get away with that? Do they know it's you? Not unless somebody tells them. So why would I worry about this? Why would I be concerned about the weak? Read on. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I teach this to my children. I need to remind me. I need to remind you. You might be able to get away with something of not being concerned about the weak, but you need to note God knows. This is one of the major lies of our enemy. Satan will lie to you and say, do this, no one will ever know it. Don't worry about that. You can hide this from your parents. You can get away with it. No one will ever know. No one in your business will know if you're doing that. They'll never see it. Be concerned about the weak and know that God sees everything you do. Even if you curse the deaf and he'll never hear it, God does. Even if you lay a stumbling block in front of the blind and he'll never know that you laid the stumbling block in front of him, God does, and you need to fear God. So be concerned about those who are weak. Fourthly, verse 15. Love my neighbor. I need to love my neighbor by judging righteously. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Don't go around as a slanderer. Don't stand up against the life of your neighbor. What's he saying here? I think the, the point here is that you and I have a temptation of one or two ways. If you were to be the judge in a particular case among a couple of people here, and that's what would happen here, right? They didn't have courts that you would walk into and nobody knows you. There's a jury of your peers that don't have a clue who you are. You would stand before somebody that you knew And so here's what he's saying. When you look and there's a dispute between somebody who's rich and somebody who's poor, you could look and say, well, if I decide on the side of the poor, if I say, I mean, the rich and say that they're right, it might benefit me. It'd be good to make friends with those who are rich. Some of you are purists and you would say, well, the rich, you know, they've got too much anyway. I'm going to decide on the side of the poor because, you know, if it's $5,000, that rich man, he's not going to miss it anyway. I'm going to get it for the poor. He deserves it anyway. The Bible says, 
Don't be partial to the poor and don't defer to the rich. Don't go to the poor because you believe you need to side with the poor. Don't side with the rich because you need to defer to them because they're important people. You judge righteously. You look at the facts and judge righteously between people. We need to be concerned about judging righteously, being fair with each other. Life is not fair, but you and I here instructed to, insofar as possible with us, loving our neighbor is to be fair to our neighbor. Number five, verse 17, love my neighbor by confronting and restoring. I was going to spend the bulk of my time here early in the week and even up until yesterday morning when I was looking back at this and I decided to take the whole section instead of really camping right here. But I want you to understand that this is an incredibly heavy section of the text. It says this to you. Look at it with me. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You have something against your brother. You've got two choices. You can hold it in your heart and you can hold it against your brother. You can talk about your brother to everybody else. As a matter of fact, he's going to say that. Don't take vengeance or bear grudge. Don't bear a grudge. Don't hold it in. Rather, what's he say? Go to your brother. Reason frankly with your brother. Reason openly with your brother. Show your brother your sin. I think Jesus is going to address this in Matthew 18. It says your brother sinned against you. Go to him and him alone. Show him his sin. If your brother repents, then you've won your brother. Don't hold it in your heart. Somebody has hurt you. There's a lot of principles we can learn from the text. There's a proverb that says, if somebody has done something against you and you can overlook it, it's to your glory. So if there's something that can be overlooked and it's not going to ruin your relationship, you can just keep on going with the relationship, then it's to your glory. Just overlook it. But if it can't be overlooked, don't hate him in your heart. It's hate when you hold it in and you don't tell your brother, you're sinning this way. I need to confront you about this. You must go to your brother out of love. As a matter of fact, he says, if you don't, you hate your brother in your heart. But if you love him, then you go and you confront. And you reason out. And you talk about it. And you restore. You don't take vengeance. You don't hold a grudge. But you restore and you heal with your brother. Loving my neighbor means that I confront and restore. Notice he says in the end of verse 17, if you won't do this, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. This is a big issue. When you and I hold a grudge and we're not willing to go to our brother, you know where the sin goes? It goes to my heart. When I hold a grudge, you know where it goes? It goes to my heart. I begin to sin here. As I read through this and I began to think about how I'd close the sermon today, I want to say a couple of things as I come to an end. First, all five of these sound a lot like what I want to teach my children. And I want to teach them to love their neighbor. But they're really, really simple commands. Look at it with me. The first one, love your neighbor by being generous. Share. God's given you. Share. Love your neighbor by being honest. Tell the truth. Just tell the truth in your conversations. You and I should share and tell the truth and we should love our neighbor by being concerned about the weak. We should help others. That's what I teach my children. Share and tell the truth and help others. And then the fourth one, love my neighbor by judging righteously. I teach my children, be fair. 
Be fair in your dealings with others. And then finally, don't hold a grudge. It will eventually cause you sin and bitterness. Don't hold a grudge. But talk about issues, conflict, share, tell the truth, help others, be fair, don't hold a grudge. Love has clear instructions for us. So here's the question. If Christ has commanded us to love one another, we need to come back and say, how do I do it? And the Bible says, share, tell the truth, help others, be fair, don't hold a grudge. And the last thing I want to say would simply be along the lines of, why is it so hard to do these things? And aren't you glad that Jesus is the only one who has ever loved his neighbor as himself? So for those of us in this place that are struggling with some of these, and you say, man, that's hard. It's simple to say share. It's hard to share. It's simple to say be fair. It's hard to be fair. It's simple to say don't hold a grudge. It's hard not to hold a grudge. Jesus has kept all of these perfectly on your behalf and on my behalf. So two things that come from that. Number one, you can receive forgiveness for not loving your brother through Christ. Because he kept it perfectly. And then he said, I'm going to exchange my perfection with your wickedness. And I'll do that. This is the exchange of the gospel. It's the good news to you. He died to pay the price for your sin. And he says, I'll put all of my righteousness on your account. So today, you need to hear Jesus offers you forgiveness for not loving. But he also says, I'm going to make you like me. God says, I'm making you into the image of Jesus. And so he is developing this in us. So we as believers need to come to him and say, Lord, you're transforming me in the image of Jesus Christ. By your power, help me to share. Help me to tell the truth. Help me to help others. Help me to be fair. Help me to not hold a grudge. God, do a work in my heart that I might love my neighbor as myself. Not just give it lip service but actually do it. God, change our lives, change our hearts, change our words, our thoughts, and our actions. Stand with me. Let's pray together.